You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to Him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only He can give. The time to kill, the time to heal, the time to break down, and the time to build up, the time to weep, and a time to laugh, the time to mourn, the time to dance. Time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. But what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in a man's heart. Yet so he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink, take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. But I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're all in here for different reasons. Some of us out of duty, some of us uh, because somebody invited us, others of us because we're, we're eager to hear, but all of us need the same thing. We need to hear from you, not from me, but from you. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and soften our hearts and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to us this morning. Do it because you inspired this book for that purpose. And so we pray that you would speak through it to, to change us, to drive us once again or maybe for the first time to Christ. For he is our hope. And in his name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. From the field of uh, literary criticism, which I'm sure that even saying that probably makes some of us start to glaze over, so just stick with me. But from the field of literary criticism of the last 60 years or so has come the concept of subtext. Okay, uh, Some of you may be familiar with that idea. A subtext is an, it's kind of an underlying theme. It's an intended message that is implicit rather than explicit. Right? When you read something, it's, it's something that's lingering just below the surface, sub, and it's intended by the author, thus it's part of his text or her text, um, but it's not something that comes out explicitly. And, and so the reality is, is that the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes have a subtext. They have a subtext. What I mean is that there's an underlying message. Better would be there's an underlying frustration that has, has been implied but not stated explicitly. Let me explain by working backwards. Last week, in chapter 2, verse 25, satisfaction is in God's hands, not ours. Two weeks ago, in chapter 2, verse 18, we work wisely and diligently, and our work is handed off over to someone whom we have no say. 
Three weeks ago, in chapter 2, verse 14, the same event outside of your control happens to both the responsible and the irresponsible. Okay? A month ago, in chapter 2, verse 11, all of our efforts at pleasure amounts to nothing gained. And, and a week before that, in chapter 1, verse 15, we saw that no matter our wisdom, we can't wrap our minds around the workings of the world. Just below the surface in all of these texts has been a frustration that our lives are out of our control. They're out of our control. Do you believe that? Or are you still operating under the, the uh, middle class illusion that with enough money and enough hard work, we can control every variable in our lives. That we're the captain of our own fate and the master of our soul. This week, even with this well-known poem, our teacher shows us, a teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes shows us that his own struggle shows us, he opens up his heart, shows his own struggle with the fact that he isn't in control and he, like us, hates it. Okay? There's an outline in your bulletin. If that's helpful for you, we're going to be looking at this in just two ways this morning. I know some of you are like, <gasps> two? Where's the third? I know, I know. Stay with me, okay? Uh, we're going to look at this two ways. We're going to look for struggling. We're going to look at struggling for control. And then we're going to look at meaning and control, okay? Let's get started by looking uh, in struggling for control at an observable order. Look down at the most famous section of the text, right? Verses 1 to 8. Verse 1 lays a foundation for us that we need to understand because we're going to come back to it later, but it's framing, in a sense, it's, it's framing the rest of the poem. So we need to hear this. He says this, For everything, and if you have a pencil, just go ahead and mark that in your Bibles. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Okay, stop there. This verse introduces this poem. Okay? A time for this, a time for that. That's the poem. We all know that. That's, that's the main meat of what he's about to say, but this is introducing it. And when he says everything, that is meant to be reflected in the poem, right? Not, not that the, the teacher is then going to write a poem that, that, uh, that actually states everything. I mean, verses 2 to 8 aren't comprehensive of every aspect of human experience, but it does cover enough that we get the teacher's point. He's saying that for everything in the world, every experience, everything... There is a season or a time. Now, what does that mean? Right? That's the big question. What, what does that mean? Here's what it isn't saying. It isn't saying that all of these things happen. Right? In other words, that saying that there's a time for this or a time for that means that he isn't simply saying that everything just, that these things occur. That would be pointless. None of us need to be told that. Right? We all know that stuff happens. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that there is an appropriate or even an appointed time for these things. For everything, in fact. Now, we could say that these are made by our action, right? In other words, what makes something appointed or appropriate is the fact that I did it. But some of the things in this list, in verses 2 to 8, are, are passive. In other words, we don't do them. They happen to us. They're not things we act out. They're things that happen to us. We're not the ones doing the acting, okay? Now, stay with me. The, the poem itself, we're not going to go through line by line. You've heard it enough, okay? Most of us have, have heard it a ton. We haven't, we've heard it enough. Here's what we need to know. First, everything in this, in this poem is listed out in, in terms of opposites. Now, that's duh, right? Okay, but stick with me. In, in Hebrew literature, and Hebrew is the original language that this was written in, Okay? This wasn't written in English, and it wasn't written in the King James the first time. Okay? It was written in Hebrew, uh, which 
you know, most of us haven't even seen, better yet, know. But in the, in the original language, there's a, there's a way of doing poetry um, that, that this points out. It's called a merism. Okay? A merism is this. It's, it's what takes two opposite things that are then meant to stand for the whole. Like when we say from sunup to sundown. Okay? We mean not that moment in which the sun comes over the horizon and lowers. We mean everything in between, the whole day, from sunup to sundown. Okay? Uh, birth and death means not just those events, but everything in life. Weeping and laughing means not just those emotions, but the full spectrum of human emotions. Okay? You, you following me? What our teacher is getting at, thank you, Julian. What our teacher is getting at here is that there's an observable order in the world. There's an observable order, but we don't make it. Okay? At best, we are adapting ourselves to these times. We are not creating them. And so, in a sense, the teacher is not simply stating the fact of these times, but noting the difficulty in discovering, um, d- discovering those times. And that becomes clear as we look to our place in that order. So let's look there now. Look at verses 9 to 11. The teacher's response to this beautiful poem is this. What gain has a worker from his toil? Now... This is an evaluation. And if you have been here the last few weeks, you know that this is not the first time we've heard him say this. That word gain, some of you will remember, means, means profit uh, in the sense of like, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Okay, he, he's saying, he's saying we, we, you see, we tend to think, we hear this poem and we think because of, because of the birds, honestly. We think that uh, this is a beautiful description of how everything just kind of happens. And so we're to go with the flow and just... Guys, that is, that is a... That's very 60s. It's just not what has to do with this text, okay? That is not how this is stated. The teacher says basically this. He's saying, in light of this, in light of these times, what do I get from all my hard work, my struggle, my toil? He's saying, what's the point? In light of this, there's times for... What's the point? What's the point? The next verse gives further context. He says, I've seen the business that God has given to the children and men to be busy with. Now here we're getting to the heart of it. Because once again, in this verse, as, as we've seen in others, we're getting to the heart of the fact that someone, someone is in charge. God has given us things to be busy with, but... But we're not the ones who who are calling the shots. That has been the subtext of the last two chapters, and here it comes again. God gives us things to be busy with. In other words, the overall character of the evaluation of these times, which we think are, isn't that beautiful and lovely, has been, it's negative. This is not a good thing to him. Not at all. Then comes verse 11, and quite frankly, our translations make this difficult for us, so stick with me for a second. He says this, he has made everything, there it is again, so underline it again if you, if you have a pencil, he's made everything beautiful in its time. Now, we, we have two words here that he used in verse 1, and they help to draw this poem together. First, he says he's made everything. He has made everything. Okay, he said that at the beginning, that for everything there is a time and a season, and now he's saying that he made everything. So those two things are meant to go together and to draw this poem together. He has made everything. It's universal. The everything from verse 1 that has a season, now the teacher says it has it because of God. God handles the everything. And just so we're sure, he says he makes it all beautiful in its time. Now, there are multiple ways to say time in, the, in, the, in Hebrew, in the original language here, but this is the same word that he used when he said a time for this and a time for that. Time for this, time for that. And now he says he's made everything beautiful in its 
time. In other words, he is the one who is in charge. God is in charge of the times for everything. You with me? I didn't ask if you're happy with it. I just said, are you with me? Like, I know some of us aren't happy with that, but stay with me. Okay, now look at that word beautiful. Now, scholars who know the original language way better than I do will tell you that that word beautiful um, can be translated beautiful. It can also be translated fitting um, or appropriate. Uh, Here's why that's the case and why it makes the most sense to understand it in this way. The ideal of vision... Uh, in the Bible for the world, okay? The Bible paints a picture of the world. It tells a story of the world. And the ideal vision that it has for it uh, is described by something called shalom. Roughly means peace, okay? But for you and I, peace means not fighting. That's not, that's not what it means in the scripture. In the scripture, it, it means more like... Um, think about how like a puzzle fits together, right? How it, the, the, you can't just kind of smash a puzzle piece in where it doesn't fit. It has to go exactly where it was intended to go. Every piece fits together. It's crafted and formed to fit in a certain relation, in in place of a certain relation to other pieces. But more than that, because it's not just about the individual piece and where it fits, when it fits there, it creates a picture of something. Right? That's how the Bible talks in in a way. It's It's the way the Bible talks about how God intended creation. He made the whole universe to fit together a certain way. He made, he made it to fit together in a way in which everything is in relationship with him. And it has us, humanity, in his image at the top. And so in that way, that is how God made everything beautiful and fitting because it was how it was intended. You with me? All right. But then he goes on to talk about putting eternity into the hearts of men. And this totally lines up with this notion of shalom. Reading this verse, it is clear that this teacher who's writing this is not happy about this fact. He says he's made eternity, he's put eternity in the hearts of men. The reason he says so that we can't figure anything out. Like, it's, it's a statement of frustration. Um, here's why. Eternity in the scripture does not mean timelessness. That's the way we think of it, right? Eternity means some kind of endless amount of time. That's not what it means in the scriptures. Here, in particular, as as, um, Dr. Walter Kaiser says, what's being stated here is a deep-seated drive to know the character, composition, and meaning of the world and to discern its purpose and destiny. In other words, God has placed into our hearts the idea that there is something bigger than us Bigger than the world that's determining things. We have that desire, but we can't figure it out. We can't figure it out because we're not God. Okay, so here's the bottom line of this section. In terms of the order of these things, you and I are not the ones calling the shots. We don't call the shots. When the teacher says that God has made everything fitting, what he means is that God is the one in control of the world and not us. You and I are part of the system. We are not the controllers of it. I know that's a rather simplistic, even crass comparison, but there it is. There's a time for everything, but we don't determine that. There's an appointed, appropriate time for things to play out, but you and I are not the sovereigns over those things. God is. Now, here's the thing. Some of us right now are like, look, I don't know much about much, but I know that that is not right. (laughs) What that dude just said is not right. And others of us who have been in the church for a while are like, 
I was wondering when the evil of Calvinism was going to come out. All right? uh, listen, if you aren't a huge fan of what I just said, join the club, because neither is our teacher. Okay? Neither is our teacher. Look down at verses 12 to 15. He says, look, there's nothing better than to eat, drink, and enjoy your toil, which, if you remember from last week, is the exact same thing he said last week. But then he goes on to say, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. From it. And so basically, we're, we're exactly where we were last week. He says, so just go get what you can out of life. And then goes, but God's in control of that too. Do what you can. Uh, no, that's not going to... At least get it. No. Like, it's, it's, you can sense the frustration. The key word in a lot of this is the word perceived. He says that over and over. And what that means is that he's giving thought. Like he's... He's um, analyzing. He's thinking through what he sees and making a judgment. He is perceiving that God is in control of the world and that we are not. That he is sovereign over creation. He is sovereign over history. And we are not. And then, quite frankly, in reaching that conclusion, he rages at it. He rages at it. Just like we do. Why? Well, to figure that out, we need to return to the story. Because you see, God made things fitting. He made things beautiful. But they didn't stay that way. Because humanity was, was uh, not content. We, we were not content being in His image. We wanted to be His equal. We, we were convinced of a lie. We were convinced of a lie that we could be like God, that we could call the shots. But not just that we could be like God, but that, in fact, we needed to be. Because God didn't care for us, and so we sinned. We betrayed God. We turned away from Him. And now, all of us, every one of us, everyone who's ever been created, is, is guilty for that betrayal and every one of our betrayals since. And we are stuck living out of that lie. Friends, that is why we rage at our lack of control. We rage at our lack of control uh, because we look at where the Bible talks about God's rule over creation, and, and we get upset and, and respond out of either... Um, contempt or fatalism because we still live out of that lie. We both want to be like God and think we need to be, think we should be like God and that we must be. And, and so we still, like uh, the German theologian teacher Bonhoeffer once said, we still put the knowledge of good and evil before the knowledge of God. We still decide what is right and wrong and then we judge God by it. And our rage at our powerlessness, quite frankly, is simply a sign of our need for a rescuer. We have eternity set in our hearts. We have a, a deep-seated desire for the purpose of the world, but we can't, we can't figure it out because we want that purpose apart from God. And the puzzle can't fit together like that. It wasn't made for that. It can't be that way. And so we are stuck raging at and seeking to displace the God who made us and loves us. The God who... We betrayed and rebelled against. And that is what is going on here in this text. And that is what goes on in our hearts. Now, what I need to do now is bring this home a bit. But first, before I do, we need to speak to some doubts really quick. Because first off, um, many of us in this room, if not most of us, if we believe in God at all, we're probably um, moralistic deists, if we're being honest with ourselves. Okay? What I mean by that is this. Um... That we believe that God is fairly distant, right? He's up there, 
We're down here. He doesn't interact in the world except on rare occasions. Certainly hasn't done so you know, in thousands of years at this point. Um, he interacts every once in a while. But basically, he's very distant but wants us to be very good. Right? Now, that is very American. <laughs> it's very American since it upholds kind of the Western values of individual autonomy and niceness. But there is nothing in the Bible that would teach us that. Okay? In other words, no matter what you've been taught, whether you've been raised in the church for your whole life, or whether you've never stepped foot in a church before this morning, I need to tell you that is not Christian. There's nothing Christian about that at all. The Psalms say that at the same time, God is high and lifted up. Okay, the, the lofty theological word for that is transcendent, he is, which means that he is utterly distinct, and at the same time, he is near to us. And the, the theological word for that is imminent. He is both transcendent and imminent. We find it utterly unthinkable that God is actually sovereign over our lives, but then we have passages like this. Daniel 4, 32 to 35, he says, God rules the kingdoms of men, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and the inhabitants of men, and none can stay his hand. Or Proverbs 21, verse 1, that, that the, the king's heart is like a stream in God's hand, and he turns it wherever he wills. Or Psalm 115, verse 3, that God is in, in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Or even in the New Testament, right? He's like, oh, that's the Old Testament. We don't. Uh. The New Testament, in Luke 22, when Jesus is predicting uh, Peter's betrayal, what he doesn't say is, really, Peter, now there's a really good chance, based on all possible futures and what I know of your character, that you might, in fact, betray me. That is not what he says. Peter says, here's what, or Jesus says to Peter, here's what will happen and when it will happen. And then, of course, there's uh, the book of Acts where it says that the death of Jesus happened according to God's will. Now, we could go on. I'm not going to. Now, some will say, but what about, what about listen, I, I, I haven't read the Bible much, but I know there are some places where it says this, that, and the other, and, and that sounds a little different. Is, that, is the Bible contradicting itself? No, not, not at all. But one of the chief methods of interpreting the Bible, quite frankly, and this stems from the Reformation but happened even before that, it was just systematized then, is that you let what is clear in the Scriptures help you interpret what is not clear. Okay, Scripture has to interpret itself. So I'm not saying that working out God's sovereignty and our responsibility is easy or even really obvious. But declaring that God can't be sovereign because of some philosophical precondition is basically repeating the sin of the garden. I know what is good and evil, and I don't need to know you. I'm putting the knowledge of good and evil, what I think is right and wrong, before my knowledge of God. Listen, don't listen to me. Go to the book. Are there tensions? Yes, there are tensions. This thing is full of tensions. This thing is full of tensions. But we hold them together and let what is easier, let, let, let the, the emphasis be where the scriptures place it, okay? Now, let me, let me speak to constructing reality real quick. The bottom line of this passage is that you and I want to be able to construct reality ourselves. We want to define what is reality, what is not, what is going to be right for me, what won't be. Um, we want control, but we can't get it. Now, maybe for you that means you want control of your finances, right? I want, I want to know where my money is, when it's going there, how everything's working, and as long as I work hard and make sure my bank statement's in a certain place, I'll, life's going to be pretty good. I'll be able to work things out. And that's all working great for you until you get laid off. 
Not your fault. Didn't do anything. Stuff happens. Or maybe it's not finances for you. Maybe it's uh, family, right? Maybe the area of control for you is for your family. So you fervently believe that if you follow this formula, right? I go with what this book says about child rearing or, or having a healthy marriage or what have you, um, that, that if I just follow the formula, that you're going to have good, godly, believing children who aren't polluted by the world. And then you follow the formula, and it all caves in on you. And if it hasn't happened yet, come talk to somebody in this room who's got a, a slew of kids or some of the older folks. Like They'll tell you it's going to happen, right? Or maybe for you, control just looks like knowing what is happening. You don't, you're, like, you're like, Rick, I don't need control of things, but I do need to know what the plan is. Like, I don't need to know, I don't, look, I don't have to pull any strings as long as I know what the plan is. Uh, but then things happen that are too complex for you to wrap your mind around. Or maybe you control through knowledge. In other words, you're the type of person that has an answer for everything. When someone asks, you hear from, a, it's, church is over, right? And you, you hear from across the room, why is this happening to me? And you're not even part of the conversation. You're like, I know. You know, you walk over and you interject. Like, you always have an answer for everything. Here's my question. Controller, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? You, are, you who are so passionate about defending your autonomy, what are you afraid of? What happens if you don't have it anymore? Let me tell you something. For me, because let's, let's be honest, it's really easy sometimes to hear the dude who's speaking up here and it sounds like he's the religious professional, right? My degree, I think I said this to somebody this week, my degree is, is in um, divinity, not in Christianity. You know, in other words, like, I'm not, I don't have a master's degree in how to be a Christian. I have a master's degree in theology and Bible. Like, it's a little different. Um, and so I'm, I'm no different than any of you. It, for me, for me... The fear is of being alone and vulnerable to harm. And the, the illusion is that if I have control of circumstances, if I have control of situations, I won't be the small, weak kid who's about to have his world fall in on him. Right? You tracking? Yeah. And so this week, this all came into a stark reality for me. And we're going to talk about this next week. Uh, members, attenders, we're going to talk about this next week. Uh, at a congregational meeting, but, but basically it looks like this. Giving is simply not there to be able to support two staff people at this church. And so in 2014, we've got to make a change. We've got to make a change with Jason. Can I tell you this? Last year has been the most fruitful year of ministry in the history of this church. Most fruitful year. And it's been the most fruitful for me, both personally and vocationally. So what did I do when I learned that this was probably going to be the case? I scrambled to come up with a scheme, to come up with a plan, to crunch numbers. Maybe somebody's not seeing things the way they should. Let me get a hold of the spreadsheets. You have heard me say before, right, that me and numbers aren't friendly. Yet at times, like, i got to come up with a scheme, so I'm going to grab it, and I'm going to wrap my, my mind around it. I'm going to wrap my arms around it. But when that didn't work, when I realized I couldn't control this, you know what I did? I got angry, and I threw an adult temper tantrum. I was like, if, if, I, if you translated my behavior into the behavior of uh, kids who are kind of like my youngest, it would have been like I stand in my office and I held my breath until I turned blue. That's what I did. Why? Because I'm afraid that I am not going to be taken care of. I'm afraid that both I can't be God, but 
I must be. You with me? I can't have control, but I must, because if I'm not taking care of me, who will? I'm afraid God isn't worth my trust, that he doesn't have my best interest at heart, and that somehow I need to throw him off his throne, take over, and make things right. And I can't, so I get angry. I get angry. Okay? Listen, we are constantly seeking to ride the line between our own personal responsibility and our own autonomy. Why? Because we want to be God. We still believe the lie. But at the same time, we know it isn't true, and so we, we, we also seek absolution for seeking our own way. In other words, we, we want to be both completely free and completely guiltless. <laughs> it's like, I want to be completely free to do whatever I want, but don't you dare hold me responsible for anything I do. <laughs> you see how that works? Uh, but that can't happen so long as you remain committed to your own autonomy. But friends, the good news that I want to tell you this morning is that God has provided for you to actually be both completely free and completely guiltless. And he has done so through Jesus. Because listen, you and I have done wrong. We have done wrong. It, it, is, it is just a fact. In fact, the Bible says that our betrayal of him, our seeking our own autonomy, that's what, that's what but listen, we have different definitions in our minds. Everyone in this room of what, when I say the word Sin, you get a certain picture in your head, right? I want to tell you what the Bible says it is, is autonomous living. Seeking your own way apart from the God you were made for. Every one of us does that. Some of us do it and it looks really clean. Some of us do it, do, do it and it makes our lives look like a train wreck. But all of us do it. Okay? It is all equal before Him. And the Bible says that that betrayal does deserve eternal judgment. But Jesus came both to live the sinless life in our place, to live that life of complete dependence, and to bear our judgment for us on the cross. But to receive this is more than just acknowledging that, right? Some of us are in this room, and we've, we've listen, we live in the valley, right? Like, like, the Bible's everywhere. I'm a, I was born in the valley, I was raised in the valley, I'm a Christian. We have this intellectual thing where we go, yeah, yeah, Jesus, Son of God, died, died for, on the cross, resurrected. Maybe that's you, Okay. But it's more than just acknowledging that. It's more than just an intellectual thing. It's to give up your attempts at autonomy and to lay your life in his hands. To confess that you've rebelled against the king, but also to receive the pardon that he is offering. A pardon that he earned with his own life, death, and resurrection. Listen, you and I want control because we believe, like I said before, that God is not worthy of our trust. But in Christ, he has demonstrated the depth of his love in spite of the fact that we hated him. We hated him. Some of you don't believe you hated him, or that you right now hate him. You want life apart from him. There's the Bible's definition. When you come to Christ, friends, though, your guilt is taken. You will be guiltless, and you come into the life that you were made for. You come into the fitting life, the beautiful life, that God created us to be. In other words, Acknowledging his rule becomes the the very definition of what the Bible calls freedom. And so we need to come to Christ. But I want to say one more thing quickly, uh, really quickly, because I'm running a little long. We need to put this doctrine in perspective, okay? Because listen, if, 
we just need to put this doctrine in perspective. Uh, I, I became a Christian when I was in college, and all college men are overzealous and think they know way more than they actually do, right? And this is just true. And then you latch the Bible onto that, and you become monsters. Like, if you like me and you became a Christian in college as a guy, like, you became a monster. What, what happened is we have to realize where all of these things happen in perspective. Biblically, sovereignty is meant, God's sovereignty is meant as a doctrine of comfort, not a guiding principle. What I mean by that is if you look scripturally where it is addressed, it is always addressed in scripture as, as a means of comfort to those who are scared, who feel their powerlessness, and who grasp their vulnerability. In other words, the lost sheep isn't heading back to the flock on the shoulders of the shepherd going, wait a minute, this shepherd just violated my freedom. Like That's, that's not what he's thinking. He is saying, he found me. Do you see the beauty in that? He found me. He found me. And he grabbed me. And he brought me home. Like, that's the beauty of the Christian gospel. That's the, the beauty of the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Not, not all this philosophical meanderings. It's he grabbed me, put me on his shoulders, took me back because he loves me and he cares for me. To use the words of the children's catechism. From that perspective, God not only knowing things but ordaining things means... A bunch of stuff. But one thing it does mean, and it has been the theme of my week, it's been that we can take ourselves a lot less seriously. A lot less seriously. On the one hand, we can stop pretending the world would be better off if we were calling the shots. It wouldn't. You and I are governed by this thing called the law of unintended consequences. We can't see all ends. When we think we govern the shot, it all... Well, I didn't mean for that to happen. I know. God is not governed by such laws. On the other hand, we can also rest knowing that in Christ our lives are secure and our identity is secure. And so we can both work and rest as those who trust their Father and their King. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are at many different places, uh, personally, individually, here in this place. But for some reason, you brought us all here this morning. Haha. <laughs> You're in control even of that. And so, Lord, here we have to wrestle with what it is that you have for us. Some of us who have been Christians a long time have to wrestle with the fact that we still, day in and day out, tell you implicitly, you know, God, I would do much better on your throne than you. So here's what I want you to do. I'll just call the shots for my life today. Or, you know, things would be really better if you just got on with my plan. And we forget that you are the Lord. And we need to repent. And trust again in Christ. Others of us, though, we haven't trusted in Christ ever. We're still reciting the poem Invictus over and over again in our minds. We are the master of our fate, the captain of our souls. As we run things into the ground and continue to get frustrated by the fact that things happen outside of our control, Lord, I pray for all of us that you would convince us through your gospel, that we don't have to believe the lie anymore. That we are not like you and we mustn't be like you because you are worthy of our trust. You have shown it through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to purchase us for yourself. And so, Lord, help us all to repent and believe on him again. And propel us out in our worship and to the table as those who rest and delight in your sovereign care. We ask in Christ's name.
Amen.